And so we've been looking at the, the first six, and, and today we come to the seventh and final sign that Jesus performs in the, in the Gospel of John. And John's a little bit like me in, in one regard, and that's that he has saved the best for last. Uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to good things, I, I like to save the best for last. When I eat, I, I want the last bite that I take to be like the best thing that's on the plate, right? Whether that's a dessert or something else, just save the best for last. I'm kind of that way when it comes to gifts, too. Um, and you can decide for yourself whether this is a little cruel and unusual or not, but, but I always like to save that best gift for for last, whether it's Christmas or a birthday or whatever, you know, sometimes the kids have something that they really, really want, something that they were really hoping for and asking for, and I always try to arrange the gift and the opening of the gifts so that that gift is last, right? And sometimes we even go so far as to wrap it in a box that says, this, there's no way this is the thing that you're hoping for, right? So they've gone through all their presents and haven't gotten what they wanted, and then they come to the last box and, and say they wanted an iPhone or something like that. It's this huge, gigantic box, you know, and there's no way it's an iPhone, but then they open it, and lo and behold, it's exactly what they were hoping for, and, and the excitement and the surprise, it's, it's great. I, I love saving the best for last, and, and that's exactly what John has done with the seven signs that he records in his gospel for us, um, because this last sign is really the pinnacle of all of the miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, it, it's really the culmination of his life and ministry. It, it's the culmination of the picture of Jesus that John paints in his gospel. And, and it's significant uh, for one very important reason, uh, and, that's, and that's that it's something that we all face, a situation, a problem, um, that we are all going to face sooner or later. You know, you may not uh, find yourself hosting a wedding feast and run out of wine um, in the middle of it, and all you have is water, and you, know, you may never find yourself in that predicament. Or you will hopefully never find yourself on a remote hillside in the country with 5,000 hungry people staring at you, wondering where you're going to come up uh, with the food for them. You probably won't run into that. You, you probably won't find yourself on a lake, on a boat, in a huge storm, and think that you see a ghost walking on the water towards you. More than likely, those things will not happen uh, in your life. But we are all destined to face uh, the situation that we find in this last sign. We are all, in the end, going to come face to face with death. Max Lucado puts it so well. The reason this topic is so important, he says this, that the grave unearths our view of God. So true, isn't it? Uh, that, that death is, in some ways, unlike anything else in the way it challenges our view of who God is. Uh, that death, unlike anything else, puts our trust in God to the test. It's true. It, this thing called death has challenged my faith, my view of God, my trust in Him on multiple occasions. Uh, the first came when I was about 26 years old. My wife and I had been married for a few years. We had just 
started a family. Our daughter Elizabeth, who's now 17, um, was, I believe, uh, a newborn or an infant at that period in time. And I remember receiving a call um, from my dad when he informed me um, that my mother had been diagnosed with cancer. Um, <clears throat> and at that point in time, I was not only a new father um, and a new husband, but I was also kind of new to this whole Jesus and, and Bible thing, right? I, I was new to the faith in Christ, um, but, but there was one thing that I knew, and that was that this, this Jesus that I had read about in Scripture was, was a Jesus who had the power and the authority to heal, right? That, that the God, as, as my shock turned to prayer, right, as, my, as, as I took my emotions and channeled them uh, to the Lord, I knew that I was praying to a God who had, who had healed lepers, uh, who had raised people from the dead, who, who had given sight to people who had been born blind and made lame people who had never walked in their entire life stand up and walk. I, I, I was pouring out my prayers, pouring out my heart to a God who heals. But I learned in a rather painful way a couple of things, and that was that Jesus doesn't always respond the way that we hope he will or we want him to. He doesn't always do the miracle or, or take away the pain that, that we're asking. And I learned a second thing, and that's, that's that the people that are dearest and nearest to Jesus are not immune to the problem of death. They don't escape the reality of this world, the reality and the presence of sin and death in this world. As I, as I prayed, I was certain that if, if there was a God who would heal strangers that he just came across because they asked, and some that he didn't even ask, that, that if he was the God who raised a widow's son from the middle of a funeral procession without even being asked just because he was passing by, then certainly Certainly he would heal my, my mother, my, a woman who had faithfully served him, loved him. Surely he would heal. But Jesus doesn't always respond the way that we hope, and even his dearest friends are not immune. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, uh, there's two sisters, Mary and Martha, you may recognize their names from other parts of scripture, specifically Luke's account in the gospel of Jesus visiting their home. And these, these two sisters, they send word to Jesus about the fact that their brother is sick. And John, as he sets up our account in the gospel, wants to make it perfectly clear what the relationship is between Jesus and this family. And so he writes in John chapter 11, verse 3, he says, so the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's significant. But Mary and Martha didn't even have to mention Lazarus' name for Jesus to know who it was they were speaking of, but rather simply one fact, that it was he whom Jesus loved. And then he leaves absolutely no doubt in our mind in, in chapter 11, verse 5, when he writes, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet, Lazarus dies. Uh, 
but John wants to make one thing perfectly clear, and that's that Lazarus didn't die due to a lack of love or affection from Jesus. He's already settled that fact. The fact is that Lazarus died because he, like you and I, lived in a world that was gripped by sin and death. God has a very simple explanation for all that is wrong in this world. And it's sin. But in our passage, we're going to see today that God has not left us without a remedy for sin, without a remedy for death. And as we examine this passage, we're going to discover an important truth, an important takeaway for us, and, and that's this, that in a world gripped by pain and death, faith is the key that unlocks hope and life. That, that in a world that's gripped by sin and death, a, a world that we cannot res- escape the harsh realities of, a world that's gripped by sin and death, in, in all its ugliness, sin is here. In that world, faith, specifically faith in Jesus, is the key that unlocks hope and life. It's that world gripped by sin and death that we walk into, the world that we step into in John's passage in chapter 11, and we pick it up in chapter 11, verse 11, where John writes that after saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to get better. He'll, he'll recover. But Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought, that he meant taking rest in sleep. But then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now you see, Jesus is going back to his friend's home, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's, it's an area that he has just left because the Jews were seeking to stone him. And now Jesus and his disciples depart under dangerous circumstances, under threats against Jesus' life to go and find Mary and Martha. And we pick up his encounter with them in verse 17 where John writes, Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me, who lives and believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God who is coming into the world. I'm going to ask you the question that you're all expecting after that passage. How many of you play poker? By a simple show of hands, how many poker players in the house? Pun intended, yeah, house. Um, Yes, wow, that was actually more honesty and self-disclosure than I was expecting. Way better than the first service. Um, Now, how many of you know what a tell is, right? There's a thing in poker called a tell. How many of you know what a tell is? Yes, okay, just like first service, more honesty about knowing what a tell is than actually playing poker, but we won't, we won't hold you to that. Um, now, for those of you who don't know, um, a tell is an unintentional, think, think of it as a clue or a hint, right, that, that you're playing poker, and a tell is something that you're looking for in other players that tells you how they feel, their relative confidence or lack thereof in the hand that they are holding, right? A a tell can be anything. Um, It's usually, almost certainly, unintentional, uh, an unintentional giveaway. Uh, It can be a pattern of betting. It can be a a facial expression or a certain thing that they do or or don't do. They may take a drink of their bottle of water every time they feel um, that they have a a very good hand or or when they're nervous that they don't. Uh, Just certain mannerisms that give away that tell, that reveal their level of confidence or lack thereof at the moment. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was an avid poker player. Okay, that, that's, not, that's not the point. Um, what I am saying is that as we observe Jesus in the text, right, as we observe his reactions, his responses, right, to the circumstances, to um, the things that are coming up and presenting themselves to him, that it may tell us something, that it may clue us in to something in the knowledge of God that Jesus possesses that others don't, may tell us something about his perspective on what is taking place. What am I talking about? Well, you see, when when Jesus learned that Lazarus was ill, and by the way, that word means gravely ill, um, something that often led to death, that when Jesus received word of his good, good friend, the one whom he loved, that he was gravely ill, we, we see no hurry or worry on the part of Jesus. Uh, that when Jesus becomes aware of the fact that Lazarus has died, still, cool as a cucumber among his disciples. That when Mary meets him on the road and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That Jesus is compassionate and yet direct 
speaking truth to her. But when Mary comes, when the, when the second sister comes and, and runs to Jesus down the path and she falls at his feet weeping and Jesus sees her in her grief and her mourning and her weeping and, and he looks at the others who are with her also grief-stricken. Tells us that he is deeply moved, that he's troubled in his spirit. We see it in verses 32 through 35. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. This idea of being deeply moved in his spirit at the, at the, at the presence of their weeping and their grief is not, is not a positive emotion, not a positive reaction on the part of Jesus. Uh, that he's experiencing grief. He, he is grieved by the havoc that death has wrought in the life of his friends. That he is grieved by the power of death over his people. When it says that Jesus wept, it could be literally translated that he burst into tears. It's a different word that's used of Jesus weeping. It's not a loud and and uh, noisy or boisterous weeping and wailing like some of the other mourners would have been doing as was traditional during this time of mourning, but it was a quiet weeping and a shedding of genuine tears. And then he does it. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And we see in verse 41, it says, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And John tells us that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. A, a man, a dead man, is brought to life by the power and the authority of God residing in Jesus. Uh, that a simple call, Lazarus, come out, breathes new life into a dead man's corpse. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's been remarked 
that the power and the authority of Jesus is so strong that if he had not specified that it was Lazarus that he was calling out, that all of the graves would have given up their dead. But I have a question. Why is there no indication of Jesus being moved or troubled by the illness and death of his friend and yet among the weeping he's moved. He bursts into tears as he faces the tomb, as he faces the weeping in the morning surrounding the tomb of his friend. One answer to his response to the weeping It's that Jesus is grieved by the pain and the injustice of this world. That he is moved by the havoc that's created in life and communities when death has its way. One person refers to this response of Jesus as a most remarkable unveiling of the heart of Jesus. A glimpse into the heart of Jesus as we see that he weeps with those who weep. And we come to understand and know that he's moved and grieved by our loss. That the heart of the Father, that the heart of Jesus is moved and grieved by your loss, by your suffering, by your grief, by your sorrow. That is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart revealed as he weeps with those who weep, that the, that the incarnation that God putting on flesh was such that He took on of his own free will our nature and cast his lot with us to suffer alongside us that he might be a faithful high priest that knows how to minister to those who are suffering. So we know why we see the response to Mary, but why not a response. Why not clarification on his response to the illness and the death? I believe it's because as God and having the full knowledge of God that in a sense Jesus was holding the cards. Jesus knew the truth. He, he knew the hand. He knew that victory was certain, uh, that when he saw the illness and subsequent death of Lazarus, he was not disturbed for Lazarus because he knew that death is not the end, uh, far from it, uh, that death is not the end of life or the loss of life but rather it's the entry into fuller 
and deeper life. It's entry into never-ending life. That death is not the loss of hope, but the realization of it. That the realization of our true hope comes only through death. As we enter into a life with Christ that is never-ending, that is free from grief, free from sorrow, free from pain, free from loss, this is what death ushers in. Death is not the end. And I believe that it's these cards, it's this truth that Jesus reveals to Martha in his conversation with her. When she meets him on the road, it's clear that Martha has faith. It's clear that Martha believes. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, Lord, I know that, that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Uh, but, but Jesus wants to take her from a, a belief, a, a general belief in a general resurrection to a deeper belief, a deeper level of trust, to a deeper level of faith, that, that he wants to take that general belief and make it a personal belief personal belief in a personal resurrection and a personal resurrector. And that's why he says in verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, the resurrection declaring himself as the resurrection, Jesus is pointing forward to his own resurrection. That he's affirming that those who share in life with him have the assurance of resurrected life in him, though they experience bodily death. And in declaring himself the life, Jesus speaks of eternal life, life with no end, life with no death. And he declares that the life that is life indeed, the life that is truly life, is a life that knows no end. Jesus was holding the cards. Jesus knew that because of his death and resurrection, uh, that death was about to lose its power, uh, that death was about to lose its sting, that death was about to lose its grip on this world. And he points out that faith in Jesus, faith in himself as the resurrection, faith in himself as the life was the key that unlocks hope and life. And that's why he asked, well, debated on whether to share this story with you or not. But as I said that Jesus was aware of the cards, he was, he was aware of the fact that death was about to be revealed for what it was. Not only that it was about to lose its power and lose its grip, but, but that Jesus was about to show it for what it really was, which is a sham. Max Lucado 
who I mentioned earlier, puts it really well in an, in an analogy that he shares in a book that's called He Still Moves Stones, a book that was uh, pretty instrumental for me early in my walk. Uh, Max Lucado has a way of bringing scriptures to life, and he does that in this chapter that he writes entitled The Grave Fact and deals with this passage in John chapter 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus, and he shares this story. He writes that some time ago, a visitor to our house showed my daughter some tricks, magic acts actually, you know, simple sleight of hand stuff. I, I stood to the side and watched the girls' responses. They were amazed. When the coin disappeared, they gasped. And then when it reappeared, they were stunned. Uh, at first, I was humored by their bewilderment. But with time, my bewilderment became concern. You see, part of me didn't like what was happening. Uh, my kids were being duped. This guy was tricking them. They were being buffaloed by him, the sneak. And I didn't like that. I didn't like seeing my children fooled. So I whispered to my daughters, it's in his sleeve. And what do you know? It appeared. Uh, and then I would whisper to them, it's behind his ear. And sure enough, I was right. Maybe I was rude to interfere with the show, but I don't enjoy watching a trickster pull one over on my children. And neither does God. Jesus couldn't bear to sit and, watched, sit and watch the bereaved be fooled. Please understand, he didn't raise the dead for the sake of the dead. He raised the dead for the sake of the living. Lazarus, come out, he shouted. Martha was silent as Jesus commanded. The mourners were quiet. No one stirred as Jesus stood face to face with the rock-hewn tomb and demanded that it release his friend. No one stirred except, that is, for Lazarus. Deep within the tomb he moved. His stilled heart began to beat again. Wrapped eyes popped open. Wooden fingers lifted and a mummied man in a tomb sat up. And do you want to know what happened next? Let John tell you. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in pieces of cloth and a cloth around his face. A dead man came out. What kind of God is this? The God who holds the keys to life and death the kind of God who rolls back the sleeve of the trickster and reveals death for the parlor trick that it is. The kind of God that you want present at your funeral. He'll do it again, you know. He's promised that he would, and he's shown that he can. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and the same voice that awoke the boy near Nain, that stirred the still daughter of Jairus, that awakened the corpse of Lazarus. The same voice will speak again, and the earth and the sea will give up their dead, and there will be no more death. Jesus made sure of that. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life.
And then he asked the question. Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am? Do you believe that in a world gripped by sin and death, that I am the key that unlocks hope and life? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? These words of Jesus, I believe, are great words for us to fall back on when grief and sorrow, when disappointment and frustration come our way. The I am statements of God, of Jesus, remind us of exactly who he is. They are great words for us to fall back on and remind ourselves, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. And then a great question to allow Jesus to pose to you. Do you believe this? Do you still believe in the face of everything that tells you the contrary? Will you? Do you believe? My hope is that we will answer as Martha answered. Lord, I have believed. I have decided. You are. I am. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the truths that your word reveals to us. The oh-so-important reminders that it gives us. When we're faced with situations, circumstances, feelings, emotions, the injustice of this world, our grief, our sorrow, the grief and sorrow of others, that you would remind us, that we would remind ourselves of who you are, who you really are. That we would not just perceive these as words, but words of faith and life that are be received in faith and acted upon in truth. We give you thanks and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm
Thank you for being here with us this morning, for worshiping with us. Just want to give you a few reminders. We have our prayer table that's located over here along the curtains. We will have prayer partners over there. If you'd like someone to pray with you, please know that that's available for you, that they would love to pray with you. Um, And then alternatively, if you prefer to fill out a prayer request, whether you want to keep it anonymous or put your name on it, either way, you can submit those. We have cards available over on the table. Leave those there, and uh, we will be faithful to pray over those starting tomorrow morning, and, and also not only our staff praying for those, but also our prayer teams. We would love to be able to join you in prayer and lift up your needs to the Father. As we wrap up this series called Seeing Jesus, I thought a quote from a book called We Would See Jesus um, would be especially appropriate. And and as we finish examining one of Jesus' I am statements, you know, uh, in case you're not aware of this, in, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as I am. When, when Moses met him at the burning bush and, and asked him what his name was so that he could tell people who had sent him, he said, I am who I am. Uh, and then Jesus, uh, as God continues to reveal himself through the Bible, that's what the Bible is, is God's just continual self-disclosure of himself to mankind, uh, that Jesus picks up those I am statements to show us the truth, that he is God in the flesh, that he is God incarnate, not just a savior, but God himself come to rescue. And as such, he declares the things like, I am the bread of life, that I am the way and the truth and the life, that I am the resurrection and the life, the great I am. And in his book, We Would See Jesus, Roy Hessian writes, Where there is need, there is God. Where there is sorrow, misery, unhappiness, suffering, confusion, folly, oppression, there is the I am, yearning to turn man's sorrow into bliss whenever man will let him. It is not, therefore, as we often think, the hungry seeking for bread, but the bread seeking the hungry. It's not the sad seeking for joy, but, but joy seeking the sad. That it's not our emptiness seeking fullness, but rather fullness seeking emptiness. And it is not merely that he supplies our need. Not merely that he gives us resurrection and life, but that he becomes himself the fulfillment of that need, that he is the resurrection, that he is the life. My prayer for you this week is that you go out knowing that you are loved by a good, good father, that the great I am is waiting for you to bring your needs because he is ready to meet you and to fill those needs not with something else, but with himself. God bless you. Have a great week. We love you.